0: Thank you very much, Alyssa, for that good introduction. And indeed, it might help or it might ruin the story. I don't know, but that priest was Father Jarrett Conradi, who talked about that. So he actually does have wisdom and uh, helps people out. So uh, I'm eternally in debt to him for his guidance in that moment of my life. I'm very much in need of it. So uh, without further ado, let us start with a prayer, and then we'll get into the meat of this whole topic before us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Most loving and merciful Father, we give you thanks and praise for creating us in your own image, creating us with inherent dignity, intrinsic dignity that gives us great beauty. We give you thanks and praise for our free will by, where we, by which we can choose the good and know true freedom. We ask you to send forth your Holy Spirit upon us this evening to continue to guide us and deepen our understanding of the great gift of reason you've bestowed upon us so we might choose the good in all that is before us. We ask all of this to the intercession of all the saints, but most especially through the Blessed Virgin Mary, and through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, so I, while I do have plenty of degrees and all the rest, my favorite gift that I've been given as a human being is baptism first and foremost. The grace is given to me there, and then the further call to be a priest. Uh, I've loved it. I've been a priest for just over three years. I've loved every moment of it. I was going to be a doctor. I told God I was going to be a doctor. He should have been okay with it, and then he did make me a doctor. So thanks be to God that all worked out. Uh, sitting in the confessional and being a doctor of souls and counseling families and counseling anybody and everybody, especially through Junction City and the military, um, I got to do everything I wanted to do in medicine, but then beyond that, I'm serving souls. So I love it. But tonight, we're going to start with a question. But before we start with that question, let me just do a little bit of practicality. I don't do well standing still during talks, so I'm not going to stay at the podium. So if you're someone who has to have eyesight, I'm sorry if there's a tall person in front of you that obscures your vision every once in a while. Like I see people already kind of doing this thing. Um, It's it's going to happen. Also, uh, I don't foresee this as a mere lecture kind of thing, because ethics lends itself. To questions, lends itself to sometimes lack of clarity that needs to be clarified. So, if at any point in the evening you're just like, Father Kyle, you're making absolutely no sense, raise your hand, ask a question, won't bother me, won't ruin my mojo or anything like that. I can easily jump back on. For those who know me know that I can talk anyways. So, um, if at any point in the talk or whatever you just really feel lost, just raise your hand, ask a question Uh, because ethics is something that's more fun in dialogue than in lecture. I've sat through many lectures on ethics, and I now understand why I like dialogue. So, the first question we need to ask ourselves about moral life and why we even need to ask this question starts before we even get to the morality of things. It starts with the first question of, who here wants to be happy? Good, great, great, wonderful. Hopefully everybody, uh, and you still showed up to this talk. So that shows something about your character, I think. Uh, maybe you like a little bit of suffering. Um, but so that's the essential question about morality. Is we first have to start with the end in mind. If you don't know where you're going, you're just going to wander around in endless ads and lose your way. So we've got to know where we're going. And that first question is, do is we want to be happy? What is happiness? So hopefully all of you have got one of these beautiful blue sheets of paper, because I also know that ethical questions can get a little complex. This has the bare bones basics of what you need to know as we go through the top. So if you're someone who doesn't like to take notes, you can just take this with you and hopefully have that beautiful, wonderful memory that you've figured all out remember it. But if not, you also have a whole back page to write everything down on if you need to. Any questions you might have or the rest? So that question about who wants to be happy and what are we created for is so important. It's important in every aspect of our lives. And so how we answer that is vitally important as well. And so often in America, right, what makes us happy, success at work, a healthy marriage, any and all of those things, everything from the highest to the lowest. I love Friday's ice cream with Reese's in it, period. I, just, I could eat that all day long. I couldn't because I'd probably get sick, but i want to. Right? But that's not going to lead me to ultimate happiness. And so, especially when we start asking questions about the end of life, or beginning of life, and the tough, ethical questions, as we're all standing around our loved one's deathbed, we got to know the decisions we're making are not because we just want someone to know the happiness of a Freddy shape. We don't want them just to know the happiness even of just human relationship, which is a great good. We want, to know them. we want to know the happiness of relationship with Almighty God, the one who created us and the one for whom we were created, and the only one who can truly satisfy our hearts. I think a lot of people have heard that great quote from St. Augustine that um, our heart is restless until we rest in you, O God. The whole idea that we have a God-sized hole in our hearts and only God can fill it, but we'll spend our entire life trying to fill it with so many other things. It always come up short so if you put all of your happiness dependent upon your spouse and they're human and they fail you we get really hurt by it if we put all of our happiness dependent upon a priest or upon some other fallible human being we get disappointed because we were created to only be truly happy with one person well three persons technically right and one god So we just got to keep that in mind at the very beginning and so philosophically I give you this definition of happiness. There was something that when I teach confirmation I actually make the kids memorize because while it's technical it's actually helpful. Happiness is the possession of the complete good and the fulfillment of your every upright desire. So if you want true happiness, not just the McDonald's Happy Meal happiness, a real, lasting, true, authentic happiness—it has to qualify these four little, uh, not four little, but four qualifiers that no evil can come with it. Does evil come with a with a Freddy's shake and Reeses? Not much, but when you eat a lot of them, it probably could. <laughs> can it? You can it be used for evil? Um, you want for nothing else once you possess it, so you can have all the money in the world. But you'd still probably want more money. We can look at Hollywood for that example, right? People make billions of dollars, NFL stars and all the rest. Um, they make tons of money, but are they happy? Absolutely not. You can see it by how they live their lives. And the last one is it has to be universally available. So again, that just limits it to one thing, to God Almighty. And I think it's just good to have that very clearly understood if we want to seek true happiness. And as we answer ethical questions, we always have to keep the end in mind. Our Lord Jesus Christ, where we're destined to be, heaven and all the rest. So we've got to get that basically out of the way. Next, beyond happiness, let's talk about freedom before we get into the crux of certain ethical questions. This paragraph from the Catechism. The more one does what is good, the freer one becomes. There is no true freedom except in the service of what is good and just. The choice to disobey and do evil is an abuse of freedom and leads to the slavery of sin. So this is a question I often ask uh, confirmation classes in different places. Are you, for freedom's sake, do you have to be free to choose hell? Is hell a requirement for freedom? And the best way to get to that, are the saints in heaven free to love God? Yes, so they're free to love God in heaven. They're not forced to love God in heaven. They're not required to do it. There's really no way they could possibly choose outside of it, but they could. Was the Blessed Mother free to say no at the moment of the Annunciation? Absolutely. But even if she wasn't free to disobey God, she was still free to comply with his will. Freedom doesn't require negation. Freedom just requires a choice between two goods. Adam and Eve were free in the garden before sin ever entered. it. They were free to choose to whatever work they were doing in the garden that day. Um, John Milton has this beautiful poem, Epic a poem called Paradise Lost. Highly recommend it. It's really fun to read. I read it all the time. Uh, but he goes through in that way the freedom of Adam and Eve in the garden of Eden before the fall. It's just important to remember because sometimes we think that we're not free to choose if we can't choose a bad thing. We don't need the bad thing. That's not necessary for freedom. and actually isn't a part of freedom whatsoever. Slavery comes from sin. We don't want any slavery whatsoever. So the good is just usually a free choice between two goods. That's important to remember as we talk about ethical questions. Because often it's not going to just be a question between one really good thing and an evil thing going to be a question between two equally good things that we have to really discern and understand the principles offered to us by God Almighty through nature through philosophy through theology us. so freedom is necessary within our ability to act towards happiness to choose the good and really know freedom so once we know what we're made for happiness with God Almighty for eternity um, that we get a taste of that here in heaven by be freely choosing the good before us we then get to that next part that comes from the ERDs. So these are vitally important. If ever you have ethical questions, this is, I'm an edition behind. They just came out with a sixth edition. Um, but the ethical <coughs> and religious directives for active health care services. I spent two years doing my master's work through the University of Mary up in Bismarck, North Dakota. It was all online, so I didn't have to go there very often. But it is a beautiful campus. A this my now, uh, but uh, these, this small little pamphlet is what we spent two years digging into, delving into, understanding fully, completely, I and mean, this is, if you want to know ethical questions, here's the bare bones basics of everything the Catholic Church teaches, They're really fairly easy to understand, with a lot of good references to further understanding. So ERDs, if you see that anywhere, Ethical and Religious Directives for Healthcare Services, really great documents to help and guide all this. So it's set up that there's certain introductions to different areas, and I just pulled this part out of the fifth part. The truth that life is a precious gift from God has profound implications for the question of stewardship over human life. We are not the owners of our lives, and hence do not have absolute power over life. Now, as Catholics, we all kind of know this, but this statement flies in the face of secular media 100%. And a lot of what I'm going to talk about tonight isn't the most politically correct way to talk about these issues. I'm not politically correct. I'm a priest of the Catholic Church. I talk about the truth and I give you everything you hopefully can get to get to happiness, where we all are destined to do. But the reality is, is that we do not own our lives. I've been given a gift, just like every single one of you, from God Almighty, and I'm called to be a steward of this gift. So the whole idea of making ethical decisions at end of life, beginning of life, is are we being good stewards of the gift that has been entrusted to us? Or are we trying to be owners of something that we don't own? Am I trying to make an ultimate decision over a life that I don't control ultimately? That comes up most clearly in cases like abortion. I don't own that new life that is in my womb. Not my womb, I don't have one, but if someone were. Do they have ultimate control over that? Do they have the autonomy as the, the modern kind of society says? And our faith teaches us very right clearly, we do not. That's why we cannot willfully choose to terminate that life. Um, that's one of the, the arguments we make is that we are stewards of the gift of life, not owners of the gift of life. That'll come up again at the end of life, when we talk about it a little bit. Food and hydration, ventilation, and all those sorts of things. Um, It's just always good to remember that basic principle. We're stewards, not owners. And if we remember that, then some of the ethical questions get a little easier to accept, um, if not always understand. So we talked about happiness, freedom, stewardship of life. Next, we're going to just mention briefly the uh, reality of suffering. We can't talk about ethics if we don't first accept the reality of suffering. And I just recently read a quote from uh, George R. R. Macdonald. He was really influential for people like Tolkien and Lewis. Um, And somehow in the seminary, so you know I got this master's degree in art of theology and all the rest. And you think I probably did my thesis on like some super theological beautiful thing. And it was really beautiful and theological, but really it was just, I wrote my thesis on Tolkien. I read the Lord of the Rings, the Silmarillion, and one of Tolkien's essays for my theology thesis. I don't know how I convinced my professors to let me do this, but it was the most enjoyable thing in my life. Like, everybody's suffering and reading all this really hard theology stuff. But I just wrote about the reality that we're created creators. We are created by a God who loves beauty. And we're supposed to live our lives through beauty. We're supposed to enjoy this world because God created it good. So even the idea of ethical reality, right? If we're created for happiness, life for Jesus Christ himself, and we get a taste of that through the sacraments, through baptism, through all those good things we have, we should be joyful. We should experience truth and goodness and beauty in this world. And we should in it. We should love a good pipe with some good friends or a good whiskey or scotch. I mean, I like myself a good scotch with some good people. Those are good things. Uh, And it's just good to remember all of that in the midst of a world that's also filled with suffering. see it everywhere. From moral suffering to physical suffering, disease, every aspect of it, it is a reality. George R. O'Donnell, he was uh, a Scottish Protestant, staunch Scottish Protestant, but he, he was very influential for Tolkien Lewis, and what he said was that God became man not to destroy the cross, to help men bear it. So, we do not believe as Catholics in what's often called the prosperity gospel. That if I come and I kneel before the Eucharist long enough, and if I just go to Mass every Sunday, if I just do things right enough, then I'll be free of the cross. But the gospel never says that. And our Lord Jesus Christ clearly never said that. What he said is that if you follow me, you'll have to deny yourself, pick up your cross daily we said things like the fact that suffering is going to be part of our lives, but we're never alone in it. We have a God who knows our pain. So this quote from St. Augustine that I gave you in the notes really helps us understand this idea of a loving God, juxtaposed or combined with, understood within the context of pain and suffering. St. Augustine said, Since God is supremely good, he would not permit any evil at all in his works, unless he were sufficiently almighty and good to bring good even from evil. It is therefore a mark of the limitless goodness of God that he permits evils to exist and draws from them good. Does God want us to suffer? No. He's not up there with a big thumb, squishing us slowly, saying, ha ha ha, I'm going to get you, out of reparation for all the sinful stupidity in your life, right? That's not our God. That's not the God who died on a cross to prove to us otherwise. But sin results in suffering. The results of sin are pain and suffering. Sin exists, we exist, and we are part of that whole system. But God brings great good out of the suffering. And this is one aspect, especially when we talk about in the life issues, that is so vitally important. Nobody likes to watch the loved one suffer. It's absolutely true. But if we fight so hard to destroy suffering, that we're willing to destroy people, and we've made suffering more important than people, and it's vitally important that we don't make that step as Catholics. Because that's the step that physicians assisted suicide and things of that nature are making. They're saying that suffering is a greater good than a human being, to be protected and destroyed with suffering so as to sacrifice a human being at that altar. We've got to make sure we don't make that jump. So again, it's just good to talk about the reality of suffering, but also the reality of co-redemption. So this is something that um, Father Tad, can't say. Words at the question I answered downstairs, we had a lot of his articles. He has hundreds of them. They're called Making Sense of Bioethics. He does a phenomenal job. This guy is just super intelligent, but he makes really hard to understand things super understandable. But he always tells a story that uh when he was a younger priest, he's not super old, but um when he was a younger priest in hospitals in Philadelphia. He would walk through the hospital and watch people die with family around them. Because we didn't have the means back then to keep people alive like we do today. He said, the saddest part is now we walk through Catholic hospitals with people surrounded by flying machines with nobody to care for them. So that's not Catholic dying. That's not good death. Uh, and so he just really pressed upon us. He said, we're well, we are giving a talk. So it's fulfilling but I for us to do Whatever you're going to talk, be sure you talk about suffering, be sure you talk about the reality of good death. We fear death so much, but God died on the cross to prove to us that death doesn't have the last word. Um, I've had at least two funerals every week for the last four weeks, throughout Christmas season. There's given me plenty of opportunity to reflect on the reality of death within the reality of the crib. God became flesh as a little baby for the real purpose to prove to us that when we die, not if, but when we die, we need not fear. Because he's destroyed death by his resurrection. And if we can go into a hospital setting with someone who is hooked up to machines, who is suffering a lot, with that understanding for us, then even if that person doesn't have the hope that we wish they had, we can hope for them. I've noticed this as a priest myself, when I go to visit people in the hospital so often, and sometimes they're not even Christian. They call the ICU and someone says, they just need someone to talk to. Great, I have a little bit of time, I'll come talk to you. That what I bring with me as a Catholic priest, this witness of what I wear and what I stand for, gives people an idea that maybe there is something more than just this, right? And we as Catholics, we go into someone's bed at the end of life, especially, can carry that hope with us, to be joyful around them, to not just pity them, but to rejoice in the fact they've been invited into co-redemption, that after this moment of suffering and pain, we hope for the reality that they will be perfectly happy with God in heaven. We can bring that great good with us to the deathbed, to the suffering. Those in the hospital, those in the nursing home, whether we know them or not. That is a great and valiant gift that we to, especially, can give in the midst of this conversation. So, those are kind of the general principles that's just good to kind of understand. Happiness, what it is, what we're destined for. Freedom, that we don't have to have an evil thing to choose, we just need two good things. Stewardship of life, we're not the owners of it, we're just to be good stewards of it. And suffering is a reality, but it's not beyond redemption, and it's not beyond holiness, but is the royal road of the cross. So are there any questions at this point? The basics of morality, if you will. Great. I'm that good of a teacher. I knew it the whole time. I knew it the whole time. (laughs) Kidding. (laughs) Uh, So, now we're going to move into the nitty-gritty details of a few specific examples where the fun really begins when um, the rubber hits the road. But let me give you a, f- a few kind of disclaimers before we begin. Remember that all ethical cases take place in different circumstances. So what I'm going to give you tonight are some specific tools, principles by which to make decisions, but they're not very like, clear-cut, easily applied to every single situation throughout the world. Because the person who right now is in Colby Hospital on food and nutrition is in a totally different place, even morally speaking, than the person in Junction City. Because of their history, because of where they're at in their sickness, because of the degree to which the food and hydration is affecting them, all sorts of things need to be talked about. I can't talk about every minute little detail in the talk, or all I would talk about is minute details, you all go to sleep, more so than perhaps you already are. So, I'm not going to get that deep into the particulars. As one of my theology professors said often, he said, when doing theology, stay in the clouds. When you descend to earth, it gets real messy. So we're going to try to stay in the clouds as much as possible. But with ethics, we're going to get a little messy as well. So I know there's going to be things that maybe don't make sense and need to be clarified. So please don't hesitate to say, Father, really, I don't get that please, because then I can clarify it. Otherwise, as soon as you just get it, and I'm a great teacher, and everything's clear, and we're just gonna move on happily. Um, so don't hesitate to do that. So that's my disclaimer think. for that. Also, secondly, um, let me give a little basic kind of primer to the reality of advanced directives and living wills. So they exist, people have heard of them. Often when you go to the hospital, they ask those questions, do you have a living will or advanced directives? um in general i'm going to say again in general not particular there might be other cases that are outside of this but in general the best practice to have is a health proxy a human being that knows you that knows your what you believe your faith that respects you and that can actually respond to the particulars of the situation best practice is a health proxy a spouse, a child, a trusted friend, a priest, whatever it has to be, someone you can trust to make those difficult decisions in those difficult moments according to your wishes. I really recommend this with families. So I've actually sat down with some families here and there to talk through. They're totally healthy. Parents are like maybe their 50s, somewhat grown children, maybe their uh, Right? No one's at any point close to death. There's no horrible prognosis you know, of something happening. But we just have a beautiful conversation about, hey, if something were to happen, here's what mom and dad wish. Here's what we want. And this is why we want it. Right? Nobody wants to have that conversation, but I've always seen it their beautiful fruit for them. So I highly encourage you to have that conversation if you can. I'm not going to force it. Pray to the Holy Spirit. Ask for you to get the gift of counsel, guide us in those particular conversations, and then have those conversations. So that if an accident or something happens, Everybody's not just standing around going, oh, I don't know that one. I don't have no clue. We never talked about this. For me, as a priest, when I show up, that's the hardest thing because now I have to try to lead the family through not only a tragedy, but then also ethical questions that could have been dealt with yeah. beforehand. And they're sometimes hard to receive ethical answers. So have the question. Then, specifically, so like advance directives and living wills. They can be very dangerous. Because sometimes what they ask for, there's one common thing that's either called the five wishes or the five lists. They, they have a bunch of different names, but what it says is like, you know, if I get into an accident and I no longer have use of my reason or however they word it, I don't want. And then you list off all the things you don't want. Well, right now, sitting in a soft sofa chair without any idea of what that's like, I don't want those things. But if you just had an accident and you actually want to be saved, you might actually want those things. So a piece of paper can't respond to particular needs of a moment. A human being can. So again, health proxies are the best decision. Advanced directives are not bad, but they just can be misused. The (coughs) NCBC, National Catholic Bioethics Center, has a beautiful advanced directive example um, and a health proxy form that are legally accepted in Kansas, at least I know for sure in the hospitals around where I am at in Duncan City. Uh, so you, you can check with a lawyer, those kind of things. Um, for a good example, yeah, I would love to, so that could be its own talk, advanced directives and living wills and that whole kit and caboodle. But I just wanted to give that basic idea best practice, health proxies. You can have advanced directives. Just make sure they're Catholic and they state in there, like, I don't want you to kill me. Uh, I don't want you to give me morphine beyond what's necessary so you don't kill me that way. Essentially, it's all different ways that we can kill people now, saying, don't do that to me. Because I'm a human being with dignity, and and I want to live. I choose life, uh, not death. Um, That's very basically put. So any questions about that aspect? Great. Thirdly, this, all this talk about end-of-life care and the rest comes in this context of a culture that has this catchphrase of death with dignity. Right, so I just want to touch on that briefly. Again, that could be its own talk. We can delve deeply into where that comes from and all the rest. There's a lot of nuances I'm not going to be able to talk about. So that whole idea of death with dignity defines dignity in an anti-Christian way or in an un-Christian way. Because what it says is that when I come up to the bed of someone who's, let's say, just got in a car accident, their brain dead, and there's really no hope that they'll regain function of their brain. What death with dignity says is that person has no quality of life. They have no purpose for being. Depends on how they want to word it. They don't put it in that way because that's not politically correct. But that's essentially what they're saying is we have subjectively determined that this person no longer fulfills a purpose according to what they wanted or what we want, and so therefore we should help them pass are the words that are often used. Now, as Catholics, as Christians, we believe that human beings have dignity inherent and inviolable <coughs> that does not change based upon what you can do. That little single cell embryo inside zygote, inside of the womb can do nothing for you might make you sick if you're a woman, um, sometimes. But it can't do much for you, right? It's not going to like play the piano. It's not going to solve math problems. It's not going to cure cancer. So according to that same definition, that doesn't have any dignity. Thus, abortion is okay. Contraception is okay. But as Christians, we know that that single cell zygote, which I'm going to talk about at the very end of all of this, has true dignity. Dignity that's the same as you and I, not based upon what it can do, but because of who it is. Because it is a child of God, created out of His love and cooperation with a mother and a father. And that's beautiful. And that's wonderful. And that must be respected. So no matter what you can do or can't do, it doesn't matter. You have dignity. So this whole idea of death with dignity um, defines dignity in an improper sense. Again, you won't see that in their literature. But just remember that when you see that. Ask them the question if someone challenges you with this idea of, yeah, but don't you want people to die with dignity? (laughs) Ask them specifically, what is dignity? What does it mean to have dignity as a human being? And they'll give you a list of things that people do. That's extrinsic, not intrinsic. It's not based upon the reality of human beings. It's based on what they do. That's not how we define it as happiness. So that's just a good distinction. (coughs) as we enter into the reality of this. Any further questions? Further? Like there are some questions that somebody asked. Because <laughs> you all have them. You just don't know what to ask them. But. So let's get into the nitty-gritty details of the reality of food and water, food and hydration, nutrition, hydration. Um, this became an extremely big topic in America with Terry Shiavo. Um, That case, there's been a number of other ones, legal cases, all the rest. I'm not going to go through the legal cases. We had a whole class on law and bioethics, so I could, but we're going to stick to the basics. As I'm talking about these different cases, I'm going to talk about food and water, and then also palliative care, because I want to redeem that name that gets a bad bad rap, which is mainly about sedation at the end of life, morphine the rest at the end of life, treating of, of suffering and pain at that point. As we're talking about both of those, just have this definition of euthanasia in your mind. This comes from the ERDs, which essentially euthanasia, this definition comes out of a document from the CDF. Euthanasia is an action or omission that of itself or by intention causes death in order to alleviate suffering. So euthanasia is an action or omission, either one. So it's called active or passive. Euthanasia that of itself or by intention causes death in order to alleviate suffering. So just remember that I'll come back to it as we go through Specifically with food and water We're going to start with this quote from John Paul II, um, Just because it gives a very clear kind of synopsis of the reality of what food and water is the administration of food of water and food even when provided by artificial means so, that's like the feeding tube that goes through the nose, called the nasogastric tube. It could be an internal tube that goes through the, directly to the stomach. It could be TPN feeding, which is into the intravenous system. Um, all of those are different means, artificial means of providing food. Essentially, you can think of it like back in the day, if you wanted to feed someone, you got a spoon and you stuck the spoon in their mouth, right? A lot of parents have done that with children, um, maybe with each other. I don't know. They all feed each other, okay? so you fed somebody, you guys, through artificial means, a fork. Uh, the reality is, is that we're going to have a conversation here in a little bit about the reality of means of feeding somebody. <coughs> and that's very key. So I'm going to hit on that again, just have that in mind as we begin this definition. So, administration of water and food, even when provided by artificial means, always represents a natural means of preserving life, not a medical act. It's very important. Its use, furthermore, should be considered in principle ordinary and proportionate, and as such morally obligatory, insofar as and until it is seen to have attained its proper finality, which in the present case consists in providing nourishment to the patient and alleviation of his suffering. tons packed into that little paragraph a lot so I'm gonna break it down just a little bit for you Uh, so the fact that it is um, so first I'm going to talk about that reality of means and what it is we always have to provide food and water and technically shelter those are the three things every human being has a right towards food water and shelter Um, as best as we possibly can it's obligatory morally obligatory In that third line, so always represents a natural means of preserving life, not a medical act. Because the reality is, is we have the moral ability, freedom, to reject medical care. I'm going to get more particular about that in a little bit, but just remember, we have the freedom to reject medical care, to refuse medical treatment. We know that legally, like when the EMT shows up, and you didn't want someone to call the ambulance, and they say, we're going to take you to the hospital in the ambulance, you can refuse to get in the ambulance. There's all sorts of things they have to say to you at that point so they don't get sued, but you can refuse treatment. When a doctor comes and tells you you have this kind of cancer, we can treat it through surgery or chemotherapy, we can do nothing. You can always choose nothing, you're free to do that. It just comes with a lot of conversation um, and all that. So you're free to refuse medical acts. Food and hydration are not medical acts, so you can't refuse them. I wrote my, my, my master's thesis on something called VSED, Voluntarily Stopping Eating and Drinking. Um, it's all the rage in places where physician-assisted suicide is not accepted. It's a legal means of assisting someone to commit suicide. Someone chooses to not eat anymore and to not drink, and they falsely tell people it's painless. You just slip into a coma and then drift off into nothingness. That's not true. Anybody who's been thirsty for more than a day or two knows the pains of beginnings of dehydration. Anybody who's fasted for more than a week, if you've done that, it also leads to a lot of pain before you slip into the coma. Um, So often these people will ask for palliative care or uh, morphine to help ease their suffering. And essentially what we're doing is helping someone kill themselves by not eating. That's to be different than the fact that when we're really sick or close to death we lose our appetite. Two very different things. One person who can still eat and could still eat chooses not to. Another person who can't just simply loses the desire for food. Two very different moral objects there. Something important to remember. It furthermore should be considered in principle ordinary and proportionate and as such morally obligatory. So when we're talking about food and hydration, providing food and hydration, we can never deny food and hydration. What we can talk about when it comes to the idea of denying or removing is the means by which food and hydration is delivered. So it's not a question of what, but of how. What is food and hydration? Always obligatory theory, no questions asked. How is that delivered? question. Because what happens is, is an example. Let's say that an older gentleman has stomach cancer, but hasn't progressed to the point that they can't uh, digest food yet. But they also can't chew because they've lost the ability to swallow from a stroke. When saw solve a case like this. That person was receiving food through the nasal gastro tube, so tube through their nose into their stomach, and everything was working just fine for a number of months. The food was being assimilated, being digested, it was actually helping their body to, to relieve suffering, those kind of things, it was working well. But as the stomach cancer progressed, um, it became clear that the food was not being digested or even moved out of the stomach, and thus was causing great pain within the stomach. So the deliverance of food was not fulfilling its purpose, which was to provide nutrition and <laughs> hydration. And so the means, the nasal tube, was no longer fulfilling its purpose and thus could be removed. We're not denied food and hydration. We just don't have a way to get it to the person. We're not morally obliged to do the impossible. If someone can't receive food and hydration, you can't force-feed them, which causes more pain. That's a very clear example. There's other times where because of, like, if they're receiving food through the initial path, fat, so it's directly into their stomach, those sites where it goes into their abdominal cavity can become infected very easily. If it becomes repeatedly infected and it's causing greater danger to their life, right, again, food and hydration should be delivered, but that means it's no longer working the way it should. So we can remove that means that it's no longer doing what it not not denying the food and water, you just can't deliver it that way anymore. Does that distinction make sense? Is that clicking for the most part? So that's why you can start food and hydration at some point, but it's always a constant question of, is this still doing what it's supposed to be doing? Actually feeding and hydrating person. Another example that often happens is if someone who has kidney disease of some kind, like you say diabetes, the, the kidneys are no longer working, And to give them hydration causes them to be swelling throughout the body, which can be very, very painful. So hydration is no longer possible. You can't give them water, and to do so is actually harmful. You're no longer obliged to continue giving them hydration, because it can't fulfill its finality, as St. John Paul II said in that that sense? It's always a question of is this food and water doing what it's supposed to be doing or not? If it's not, we can then have the, the conversation about food right? It's very important to know those very basic distinctions in that. And I didn't use this exact language because it can get confusing, but you'll see this if you read about it. Uh, These words that he used in this paragraph, like ordinary and proportionate. So I gave you the definition from the ERDs of proportionate and disproportionate means. Because we're going to talk about that a lot. And it's something that you hear all the time in ethical questions around end of life and even beginning of life. So proportionate means are those that in the judgment of the patient offer a reasonable hope of benefit and do not entail an excessive burden or impose excessive expense on the family or the community. Disproportionate means are those that in the patient's judgment Do not offer a reasonable hope or benefit, or entail an excessive burden, or impose excessive expense on the family or the community. Vitally important in both these definitions, in the judgment of the patient, there is a relative degree to questions of morality at times. Morality is not relative, but sometimes the application of the principles needs to be put into the particular situation. So the question in this comes. I um, actually had this case that, that came up, was a family. Um, the, the person needed ongoing ventilation, and ongoing, um, very expensive,
1: it's antibiotics pretty much.
0: Uh, and literally the family could not afford it. Medicare would not pay for this. They couldn't find insurance to cover any aspect of it. If the family tried to pay for this, um, They would have been out of house. They would have been able to eat. All of this was falling apart. And we couldn't find a charity or whatever to help them out. In that case, the treatment was kind of doing its job for this patient. But the patient who was conscious at the time, in conversation with the family, as this definition said, the community or the family, (laughs) determined that it was an excessive expense and burden on the family they stopped the treatments and a few weeks later as they passed. Full, full reality of the sacramental system and all the rest. That was an ethical decision. It wasn't something based off of, well, I just don't want to suffer anymore, so just keep it all. It wasn't based off of this idea that, like, well, this just is the most horrible thing in the world, just let it in. It was this idea that, like, we would continue this if we could, but literally it's impossible. And I'm not going to sacrifice my family just so I can have an extra and was a beautiful conversation I had with them. Again, that idea of happiness and the idea that we're stewards of the gift, not owners of the gift. So actually, this person was able to live out the end of their life in a more beautiful way by accepting that decision that was perfectly in line with Catholic teaching. And if they would have just fought to the bitter end, they put their family at risk of losing house and home. Um, so I'd just like to point that out, that we can have those conversations as you don't have to, this isn't like an absolutely rigid system that you just have to fit a square into the, into the circle hole. Just batch it into the fits. Because people get hurt. We don't want to hurt people. People matter, matter, and we love them, and so we want to serve them. So, again, that's just very basic. There's tons I could say more about that. But at least now you've heard it, and if you have questions about it, you can call me later. <laughs> or call the NCBC that has a, a hotline at all times. I'll give you that at the end as well. Uh, So, any questions about food and hydration? The same exact understanding and kind of breakdown can be used for ventilation, or any other mechanical use of keeping the body alive. Is the ventilator providing what it says it will provide, oxygen through the lungs to the body? The lungs no longer are working, they don't actually provide oxygen, the ventilator isn't doing what it's supposed to do, that means is no longer necessary. But if in using the ventilator, it actually is helping the person keep their oxygen levels up and it's fulfilling its finality, we can't just remove it because we're just tired of seeing grandma on the ventilator. Because it's doing its job. It's doing what it's supposed to do. So to do so would be to remove something that, is, that we can't remove. It's an ordinary means at that point. But again, all of those things are ongoing conversations. Entering in the hospital, ordinary means. Two months later, disease progress beyond a different point, have the conversation again. Two days later, disease has progressed to another point, have the conversation again. Is this still ordinary? Is still something that I think has a reasonable benefit of helping me or not? Um, so that's just important also. Always keep that conversation open. It's important. Um, so for the sake of time, and energy levels and the rest. Um, I'm gonna basically briefly talk about sedation, but not get into the principle of double effects, which is really fun. I love it. It's a fun principle to use, but it's not complicated. You have it in before you, and I can give you articles that explain it as well. But the whole idea of end-of-life care often is coming up with pure palliative sedation. So you've heard the word, you know what it is. All it's talking about is how to care for the person at the end of life who's suffering a lot of. It cancer, pain, physical pain, whatever it is. So we give morphine or some other kind of proxenol, some some kind of painkiller at the end of life. But the painkiller can't actually keep the pain to a minimum because the pain is so bad. But the reality of all the morphine and the opioid drugs is that once you give enough, it'll start to shut down the body. So there's like this happy medium you have to find so that we don't kill somebody by giving them so if someone gets a morphine drip and they think that every time they click it, they get morphine, the reality is that's not true. It's set to, you only get so much over a certain period of time, no matter how many times you click it. But there's sometimes a subjective idea like, clicking it, so I feel better. It works. It's helpful, it's good, but use it psychology is a wonderful mm-hmm. thing. But the reality of palliative care is a beautiful gift offered to us through the use of medicine. God's given us the gift of medicine, we should use it well. And especially for those who are suffering in the question comes down to, is the doctor prescribing too much pain medicine just to hasten the person's death? It's a big question to ask. If you're in a situation where someone is getting pain medication and they've gone comatose, they no longer can respond, you need to challenge the doctor with that question. You have the legal right to do so, and I would say the moral responsibility. Because unfortunately, I was in medical school for a year. It's just taught, like, you just help the person pass. That's loaded language. And if someone's not Christian, they don't know the reality of, of the dignity of the human being. They don't know about happiness. They don't know about stewardship of life. They don't know any of that stuff. So they just do what secular media says is the compassionate thing to do. So challenge the doctors with that question. Are you giving enough morphine just to treat the pain? Are you giving so much? that it's leading my loved one to die. And essentially what that would be called is passive euthanasia. We're allowing someone to give a lethal dose of medication. Um, so I think it's just, I just like to equip people with that question <clears throat> and challenge the doctor Because the reality is, is that eventually we are called like they'll have to give a certain amount of morphine that it might lead the person to enter into a coma, kind of a medicated coma, and eventually it will lead to the Stopping of the organs, but when it's done in a Catholic manner that's okay with Catholic teaching, um, it's done in such a way that the doctors and nurses are continually checking the pain signs. So if your doctor or nurse hasn't come in to check to see if the person's in pain in the last couple of hours, ask them about it. Are you giving them more more morphine, or do you know they're in pain? Are you treating the pain, or are you just giving them more morphine? Those are just important questions to ask that I think we just need to be equipped to do so. Because, unfortunately, I've witnessed the reality of... I didn't know it at the time. This was before I was a priest. But the reality of a doctor who... I don't know if they knew they were doing it. I'm just going to assume the best they didn't. But they just kept pushing the morphine to the lethal point. Um, that's essentially what a physician-assisted suicide is. They give you a lethal dose of opioids or some other drug to help you die faster. Can't support that at all. So we just got to be aware of that. Um, so that's really basic, basic sense, Does that, any questions about that? We'll have time for question and answer end this as well. The final thing I'm going to end with uh, is just this basic paragraph that's about beginning of life stuff. So I would love to talk about, you know, conception and I'd love to talk about the beauty of life at the beginning and the fact that we're stewards of our reproductive gifts and not the owners of them and children aren't products. They're not something that we are owed, but they're something that God gifts us with. I would love to talk about the reality of the struggle of infertility that seems to be on the super rise in our day and age, and talk to those couples who are struggling with it. I have many conversations with couples about that reality, um, but I don't have time to do that. But I just mentioned all of them so that you at least know that I love to talk about them. And we need to have that conversation open in the Catholic Church, because people shouldn't suffer in silence. So I'm just gonna read this real fast, make a few comments, and then we'll, we'll end the talk. So the moment of fertilization, the moment that the sperm meets the egg and you got a new human being, a unique human being comes into existence by the grace of God and the cooperation of parents. By the grace of God is important. Even when a technician does this all in a Petri dish, God cooperates with that. That human being cannot exist without God's cooperation. So there's no accident. Absolutely impossible for there ever to be an accidental human life. Impossible. Because God has to create that soul out of nothing, out of pure love. Period. Solely the only way possible. doesn't matter how many sperm and egg come together, it only becomes a human being with God's grace. So we just always have to remember that aspect, um, so that no child is an accident or unwanted. That single cell then has a unique combination of 46 chromosomes that make it a human being. And that single cell is everything necessary to develop into a human being. It has a unique individual, the human species. One of the beautiful things I'll just mention biologically is the moment that the sperm meets the egg and penetrates the zona pellucida, the outside part of the egg, the axis of the human body, like the head, and the tail, and the front and back is already set. It's one single cell. That actually hasn't even combined to make the nucleus yet. But everything that's necessary to set up the human being is already taking place. That's beautiful. For me, in, in, in college, when I was studying all of this, it was actually developmental biology studying how life happens. That led me to understand that the only way that human beings are ever born in the first place is by a miracle of God. Everything that could go wrong is humongous surprised that any one of us actually made it to birth because of all the chemical things that have to be perfectly lined up at the right exact time for us to actually have a spinal cord. Ridiculous. But it happens over and over and over again because God is beautiful and wonderful and merciful and he's created this system to be amazing. So I think it's just good to remember that That um, at least you've heard a Catholic priest say it for sure I, hopefully you've heard it many times before. Every single human being, every single zygote that's created, whether they're preserved, cryo-preserved because of IVF or whatever, they're wanted, they're desired by God, and they have intrinsic dignity, and they're created for the same happiness as you and I. So we need to treat them that way. So that's vitally important. In all the arguments for contraception, abortion, and in vitro fertilization, Even with gender dysphoria, am I a man or a woman, and transgender, all those conversations come back to this reality. At that moment that the sperm met the egg, all of that was defined for us, not by random happenstance, but by God's divine providence. And so we need to obey that divine providence and learn from it, and not dictate it by our own desires. It's a loaded question, I know. But at least I've said it so we can have that conversation. Um, So with that being all being said, there's plenty more I could go into. The final things I'll say, I've told you about the ERDs. If you want to learn more, basically, here's a good book. And I'll have these downstairs, or you can ask about it later, or you can email, whatever. Bioethics and Beatitude is the best book on bioethics out today. Very understandable. It's not just a bunch of technical jargon. Um, it's written by a really faithful Dominican priest who does a great job of making tough issues understandable. gives you tons more history and all the rest. So, Biomedicine and Beatitude by Nicanor Pierre Giorgio Austriaco. Father Austriaco. <laughs> this is a better way to name it. This one's the Bible. It's really helpful. Read it. it gives you everything you need for life. <laughs> uh, then another one by Dan Smith. Life issues, medical choices. It's just like a question-and-answer kind of thing for really specific medical questions. Really grateful. Very understandable as well. So, life issues, medical questions. And the final thing I'll tell you, I meant to put it on the little handouts. I'll just have to write it down. NCBC. National Catholic Bioethics Center. Website is ncbcenter.org. Go there, search around. It is literally, you, can, you cannot be led astray on that website. Everything on there is approved by the Catholic Church. It's by the best moral theologians in the Catholic faith right now. It's beautiful stuff. So go to the NCBC. They have a 24-7 hotline. You can call or email. So if you have any questions at any point, you can call me, but I'm not that smart. I don't know all the answers. Those guys do. And ladies. <laughs> there's Both. Um, so please use the NCBC for what it's meant to be. Which is a Catholic resource in a lot of difficult questions in the medical world. So, with that, the final thing is I don't know if anybody picked up any of these prayer cards out there in the very beginning. If you didn't, pick them up on your way out. A little bit of a story with these. Um, the reality is, God's love is abundant and beautiful. We all know that. We've talked about it tonight with life, the end of life, and all the rest. The way that He's calling our diocese to accept His beautiful and abundant love. With the The permission of Bishop Vinkey is to found a religious order in our diocese, for our diocese of religious women. The beautiful grace, has a lot of kind of story that goes to it, but Bishop Vinkey has asked me to kind of help spread this message via these prayer cards. Um, So I ask all of you to, as you leave, we have a box of them here, take them with you, spread them around, ask people to pray this prayer for the successful founding according to God's religious order in our diocese and for our diocese. Uh, So there's tons more, but at this moment, uh, I think the biggest thing is is let us turn to God in prayer and trust that He's working a beautiful grace in our diocese. And As more particulars get worked out, we'll kind of work all of that out and let everybody know in the diocese because it's a beautiful gift because the special grace that's being called is for the sanctification of priests. Holy priests, holy families, holy parishes, we change the world, right? One thing at a time. So, um, just a beautiful prayer. So we're going to end by saying this prayer together. If um, you so don't have it, sorry, but listen. Um, and then pick up your holy cards on the way out. Um, just entrust ourselves to the divine providence and loving mercy of God. And I do want to just say one thing with this. Is I know that our diocese has been super well served by different religious orders It seems St. Agnes. This is St. Joseph, but especially in this parish, this area, it's not an either-or thing. God's love is abundant. It's a both-and. We're just asking to fulfill God's will in the way that He makes it manifest. So this is praying for all religious, but most specifically for a foundation of the new religious order to work with and for the entire diocese, including all the other religious that have ever helped us, male and female. So it's just a beautiful way of accepting God's positive love. So let us pray. In the Father, in the Son, in the Holy Spirit. Amen. O humble and hidden Jesus, grant us share in the Eucharist's life. We may and You have the energy left for it. There'll be cookies, so that's at least one benefit of coming to the question and answers.